Hi guys and welcome to episode 54 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. Now this week it's the Tour de France. I don't know if you guys had noticed but we've noticed something really interesting which is that we've got both Jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert both running one by setups on their bikes. So we decided that we'd get Jamie, Jack and myself together to discuss firstly why they've chosen to use one by but also what the future of it looks like and the history of it so it was a really fascinating discussion really because Jamie has been working on this for a while and has been looking at the various different ways it's being used all about the kind of gear ratios why it's not necessarily been adopted by the masses but why we may actually be looking at it kind of you know as we saw disc brakes kind of four or five years ago so it's really yeah as I said a fascinating chat definitely worth a listen and then second up we have basically a live test from Jamie who went to Synergy Performance performed the test and spoke with Luke who is one of the guys that works there so it was we haven't really done anything like this on the pod before and I think it sounded great and what they were talking about was really interesting, especially if you're really kind of looking to improve your performances and basically work out why people like Vingegaard and Pogacar are so great compared to normal people and you know what physiological changes they've kind of seen in order to make that happen. So yeah, really good episode and I hope you guys enjoy it. So here is episode 54 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. Hi guys, so today we're here to talk about the use of Wombai, what used to be a bit of a faux pas has now seemed to hit kind of the mainstream because we've seen Jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert using it at the Tour de France already this year. So today I'm joined by Jamie. Hiya. And Jack. Hello. And we're going to talk about the history of Wombai, the future of Wombai and what it's currently doing. So Jamie, you wrote an article this week with Jonas Vingegaard uses one by gearing for Tour de France opening stages. And you've kind of been looking at this as well. Do you want to give us a bit of a lowdown of what, what you found? Yeah, so we first saw that Jonas Vingegaard was going to use it at the Dauphiné. So we went out to the Dauphiné, spotted his bike, and he used it on three out of, I think there were seven stages on the road bike anyway. And yeah, he used it on three of the stages. And there's only one reason why you use new kit at the Dauphiné. And that is because you intend on using it at the Tour de France. And, well, we didn't have to wait long. It was the first stage that both him and Wout van Aert were on one by chain rings. Now, one by chain rings are something that they are sure to split opinion. Some people are perfectly happy on their two by setups. Other people see it as progress. Some people really don't see it as progress. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation. Um, obviously, it's not the first time that we've seen one by being used in the pro peloton. Um, it was Aqua Blue team that uh, they used it years ago with limited success. It has to be said, um, they had their three T Strada bikes, which I think it was two seasons that it lasted for before they really did have enough. It was less um, than that. That was, it was a season, yeah. season and a half-ish before they, they folded, yeah. And there, there are various comments about them being test pilots and uh, whatever, you know. Like, I, I think there were some people who thought that, you know, they were just being used in some kind of um, crazy experiment rather than one by being genuinely the, the, the right setup for professional road cyclist bikes. Yeah, well, yeah, I think when the team owner said this lab rat thing is costing us results, yes. that's sort <laughs> that's, of that's, uh, that's a good phrase. Yeah, that's never a good thing, really, is it? <laughs> no, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I guess that what what do you think has been because we're seeing it more now, kind of amongst genuine contenders. I mean, do you think and we do you think that that kind of coincides with the you know increase in cogs that we've seen at the back? 
Um, I think that 12 speed obviously has helped. For so long, we were limited on by the 11 tooth sprocket at the back, whereas now there's different free hub um, like standards. So you can use a 10 tooth cog at the back, which increases the range massively. Um, so I think that's why we're seeing more one by systems now. So for, yeah. for pros, I guess it's less about the... It, it, it's more about those nice little, having those little steps in between the gears for somebody who's extremely, well, you know, has a, a huge engine and needs to be in that perfect cadence all the time. I think because I remember when, when the Aqua Blue thing came out and then I remember the comments around the site and, you know, a lot of people saying, well, I, well, I, run, I run one by on my gravel bike or on my commuter bike and i don't see the problem it's much easier but then if, if you think about the demands of professional cycling and um, but even down to like talented amateurs because i i remember when you know when i was a bit better at cycling than i am now and had you know full use of my right leg even me i remember testing bikes with one by uh, with a you know just one by eleven like eleven speeds at the back and one at the front and I, and I could notice those gaps as like just a reasonably average amateur cyclist you know so someone like but for now the difference between Aqua Blue saying they're lab rats to, I mean they're not Jonas Vingard trying to win the Tour de France there's, there's no absolutely no way on earth he's being used as a lab rat just to sell. Um, one by chain chain ring systems surely it must be well, genuinely is, the right option there is plenty it. of argument about that isn't there and people saying that this is just SRAM pushing it as a marketing act um we did get a statement from them that and well as predictably they said we don't push jumbo to use one by gearing there's no marketing around this although it helps a lot of course with their marketing um the riders have the tools at their disposal then they do what they want they control what they do and we couldn't impose them to use a product if we wanted to. And that is something that I actually believe. Jumbo Visma are leaving no stone unturned in their quest to win the Tour de France. I don't think, however much money SRAM is paying them, that they, would, they, were, they wouldn't sacrifice their chances at victory if they didn't want to use this. How, how much, putting our tinfoil hats on, how much would it take for them to disadvantage <laughs> How much money? Seventeen oh. million pounds, I'd say. <laughs> but it's the same. It's it's the same when in any sport, and I think cycling cycling is a relatively you know it's not the, the largest sport in the world. We're not going to pretend it is, but yeah, I mean that maybe there was some truth there that Aqua, in the case of Aqua Blue, um, not um, a top professional cycling team, may maybe were being used as a vehicle to to show progress. Uh, in in bike technology but that isn't going to happen at the very top level of professional road cycling mm. uh, and, and we've even seen like with, with you know teams using unbranded uh, unbranded kit when they're not happy and surely we just see that if they were trying if they were trying to make vingard use one x and he didn't want to use one by and he didn't want to use it um he wouldn't be using it surely it must be genuinely i think if he didn't want to use it and shram yeah. or yum or yumbo visma were were really pushing it then well he'd go and ride for another team wouldn't he i don't think there's any short supply of teams that want him i mean i think an interesting uh, an interesting question is why people are turning to one by now because i mean originally aqua blues argument for you well it wasn't really aqua blues argument for using it but you know the, the original argument for using it in general was because you didn't have the front derailleur it basically meant the airflow was cleaner and therefore more aerodynamic but now when we're seeing it you know looking at the way that it's being used you essentially do have you know you it's not a front derailleur, but you've got a chain guard at the front anyway. So you're not really getting, it doesn't seem that that argument is still valid because you're still going to get that air disruption. So what, what do you think is the reason for people moving to one by versus you know, the, the standard? Um, I think that aero does still play a role. Um, if you look at uh, the, the shape, the form factor of front derailleurs now, if anything, they're larger than they were 10 years ago because they're, they're electronic. So the new Campagnolo wireless front mech, the SRAM front mech, they're pretty sizable units. Um, and that is going to have an aero drag penalty. 
um, even compared to if you use a chain guard, which most of them are. They're all using those new wolf tooth uh, chain guides. Um, Yumbo Visma are in it anyway. Um, so I think there is an aero benefit. And I actually chatted to Xavier Disney from Aero Coach yesterday. And he he was saying in about the region of three to four watts saving from getting rid of a, a front derailleur, which, I mean, when you're looking for every marginal gain, then that is significant. Um, but then you've also got a, a weight saving. So probably around 170 grams for most front mechs that you can get rid of. Um, and then you can also get rid of the inner chain ring as well. So that's about another 40 grams that you can get rid of. Um, and Yumbo Visma told us that, that means that their Cervelo S5 that they're using, the aero bike, can weigh similar to his climbing bike. But although we didn't get any weights for, for that. So sorry. Interesting. So we're, we're talking about like very marginal things that matter to the top of professional cycling here. Uh, like, practically do you not like is that not the bigger argument for that that like so changing to your small chain ring takes a bit more time and it's a bit more fiddly than just changing changing the back set so isn't that for the what for the wider consumer and even up to professional cycling isn't that the main argument for one it's just that it's easier i think simplicity certainly plays a big role and um a discussion, yeah. I think a really interesting topic is if you if you're on a climb and you see someone like if you're a professional cyclist, then you will have to decide when you change into your little chain ring or yeah. when you change back up to your big chain ring. And it's not so much that that takes much time, but it can upset your rhythm. And people do attack when they see other people changing gear or their front chain ring. Like mm. so, maybe using a one by setup helps with that element of surprise and people don't know what you're up to yeah yeah i I think that it's because i've got so i've got my gravel bikes running on one by like sram one by at the moment and i think that it is it's one less thing to think about because it's it's much simpler in terms of just using it as well because it's you know up down rather than you know, up, 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 down, down, down. It also makes it easier to, you know, I know it sounds a bit weird, to, but to recognize which gear you're in, you know, if you've been going, de- if you've been going along in the same gear for you know, five miles or something, because you're on a flat, you know, it's quite, it's a bit of a, you know, you can sometimes forget where you're at. And then as soon as you hit climb, you're at, okay, right. Okay. I'm in completely the wrong gear. Whilst when you're using one by, it's just a case of flicking up or down you know, one, one or two rather than having to, you know, work out roughly what your ratios need to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably, you know, I don't know how relevant really, that would be to pros. Because we were saying this before, weren't we? That like the, if we were trying to work this out or like, no, I think we were saying that if you've got a two by 12 group set, like a Shimano two by 12 or SRAM, the latest generation. So that's, 24 gear options but you actually have 17 different combinations there is that did we think is that what you said obviously it changes depending on what set size and what chain ring sizes you want but yeah there's a huge amount of overlap which it seems like quite a antiquated design really when you've got 24 gears but only actually 17 or 18 that are are useful to you and the rest are overlaps That does so seem then I guess bit... I, I, the, the main argument, well, not the main, but like the, the an argument for for all bikes, not because it's had almost universal adoption on mountain bikes now and getting that way on gravel bikes, and then so the the, the most ardent uh, you know road cyclist who doesn't believe in one bike, like, well, I have less options until you can give me a seventeen. Uh, you know, a seventeen speed cassette at the back, then I'm limited by one by. But like, even if, if that doesn't even matter to Vingard anymore, then why, if one by is so perfect, why is it not um, on every single road bike on, on general sale now? Just because people are, are, are getting used because roadies are, are stubborn. And um, I think, I think that, that's certainly part of it. Us roadies are traditionalists, aren't we? And we, do, we don't like change. We don't take it on quickly. Not like mountain bikers. They can, if a new idea comes out and by the neck, within three months time that everyone's using it like we it's taken 
how many years have we been discussing tubeless when that's been a thing in in mountain biking and gravel for ages i think that one by is just the is the same sort of thing that, that it will happen and one by will go more and more be more and more common on the road it's just going to take some time yeah i mean i think we i mean we've seen it with kind of everything with road bikes really haven't we even even disc brakes which you know are now pretty synonymous like you're you're you don't really see a huge number of new rim brake bikes but i remember you know there's not far back as like 2017 2018 you didn't really find that many and now it's everywhere and I remember having a a disc brake mountain bike. Basically, uh, you know, the early years of my of um, of secondary school. So I mean, it took a, a long time for road bikes to say, okay, right, yes, this thing which is objectively better is something that we should adopt. And there was all the arguments around it because, yeah, there still yeah, is. But... <laughs> yeah, there still <laughs> is. I don't understand. I don't understand having you know having a bike with rim brakes and a bike with um with disc brakes i don't understand why anybody still wants to run with with uh, rim brakes and it's yeah. those small it's it's always going to come down to a small minority who have who are pernickety isn't it and that but that gets um amplified because they have loud voices because they they've got specific demands so with disc brakes the and and you saw it with pro, like um a, a certain you know multiple tour winner still isn't particularly happy now with that but that's because the demands of somebody who's who's that elite uh, are greater than the rest so for the rest of us who just think that disc brakes are absolutely you just cannot see the reason why if if somebody who's ridden tens of hundreds of thousands of miles in their lives an elite cyclist and they notice a tiny tiny bit of rubbing or their bike is um you know a couple of hundred grams heavier than their rim brake one, then they might have a problem with that. And I think again, with one by, like I said, the reason it's not completely mass adopted yet is, is like I said, you've got, um, you know, a small group of may elite and very pernickety cyclists who, um, probably <laughs> very spend good money. So it's worth listening to them and maybe they're not quite sold yet. And until, um, everybody is, then, then that's, mm. But I think disparate, it is getting more and more. Um, I don't know, the last article we ran on, uh, I'll say Chris Froome um, being unhappy with his equipment, um, that there's generally more people who are like, what are you on about, Chris, than, than are like, yes, I completely understand. <laughs> like, yeah. I, mean, I think had- in, in cycling, there is no perfect bike for everyone. And yeah. there's no bike that's good in all situations. So... It's about choosing the bike which is best for the type of riding that you do. And in the UK, we can I think we're we're all in, in agreement here that we would choose disc brakes because we, we're not wearing out wheels and we, we ride in wet conditions and stuff like that. If you're riding up mountains in the dry the entire time, then yes, a, a rim brake bike you you won't have a problem with it. And they've been working fine for many years and stuff. I think the same can be said for one by. It's about whether it will suit your style of riding. And we've seen Fingergaard and Wout van Aert, they're swapping between, they've got the luxury of having all this kit at their disposal and they will swap between one by and two by. And I imagine they'll do that for probably several years. And I don't think it, it's obviously not right to say one by suits every cyclist better than two by, but for some it will. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So I'm just looking through. You know, now that we were talking about you know, rim brakes and disc brakes, of of the last fifty bikes that we've reviewed on Road CC, three have had rim brakes. So it is that, and I wonder if we're going to be seeing the same thing with one by in two or three years time that, that's the that's the the if if uh, you know okay if uh, a tin for hat on again if the industry well it's not even if the, if the industry wants all bikes to be won by because that's it's it's much easier isn't it if um if you're a bike brand and you, you're having to um you're having to produce bikes with rim brakes and disc brakes you're having to produce bikes with one by systems and, and two by you'd probably rather 
them all be running the same equipment. So that's the question that the industry has to answer, isn't it? Or the thing that they've got to address, they've got to make it so there isn't an argument anymore. And it's um, because we saw even as much as, was it two two tours ago or three tours ago, Pogaccia was switching between rim brakes and disc brakes. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, for, for you know because of because of the web but then so the industry had to answer that question they had, they had to uh you know okay well we'll have to make the disc brake bikes lighter or we'll have to make it so that you know improve them so you're not feeling that tiny bit of rubbing that that some people were complaining about and the same with one by it's like if um you know like i said that if you've got 17 options on a a two by setup and you've got 12 options on a one by setup then the 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 question that the or the the thing that the industry has to develop is is to reduce those shit so i i think um it's, it's probably just going to be more and more cogs at the back isn't it you know which will finally um mean that vingegaard or whoever they won't have to choose between one and two by in the future because it will be there won't be any reason to switch i I think it is going that direction. Like we haven't seen 13 speed on the road yet, but I don't think it'll be too long. Like Campagnolo e-calf gravel group set, that's 13 speed. So it's already proved that it can be done. Um, obviously, SRAM, Shimano and Campagnolo, the new Campagnolo are all 12 speed. Um, I think one by has become much more successful now than in the Aqua Blue days because of the 10 tooth sprocket at the back, which increases your range dramatically. Um, and obviously that took quite a sizable shift in the cycling industry because we've been using those like XD11 free hub bodies for so long now that limited us to 11 tooth sprockets at the rear. Um, and that obviously had to change with the SRAM XDR and that came back from mountain biking. Um, so I've got some, uh, ratios of, of Vingegaard's bike. And it just goes to show like what range you can get with one by. Vingegaard was using a a fifty tooth ring on the rear, and then he's been seen with both a ten thirty three tooth cassette at the back, which is what he typically uses with a two by setup as well. Although we've also spotted a ten thirty six tooth cassette on his bike, which that might be a completely new cassette, which is quite interesting. Um, but a fifty ten gear combo gives the equivalent of using a 55-tooth ring at the front if you were using an 11-tooth ring at the back, which is obviously absolutely huge. Like for general riders, I use a 52-tooth ring. I know quite a lot of people that will use a a 50-tooth ring on. That's a compact chain set, Um, which seems like that's a huge amount of gears for someone that doesn't normally contest sprints. Wout Van Aert, obviously, he does contest sprints, so he might have even had a bigger gear than that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, so if he's got his 52-tooth ring on the front and a 36-tooth cassette on, then that gives him a ratio of about 1.39, which is equivalent to, so if I go out and ride in my little ring, that's a 36-tooth, then I can go up to the 26-tooth at the back, which doesn't sound like many gears, but also I don't have the same top end. I don't have a 55 tooth he's, ring. Yeah, he's got um, his top end is as much as uh, someone like a, like a, a good club cyclist would want on a flat 10 mile time trial. And yeah. at the rear, he's got more than, than somebody would have had at the back on their road bike like 20 years ago or so. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I think like um, until the the 2000s it was even for amateurs most road bike is like 50 to 53 39 and and an 11 25 cassette or something uh, wouldn't it yeah. be i think whilst we shouldn't all go out and copy his gearing he because he's obviously a lot stronger than us um even though he's riding some of the hardest terrain in the world um i think that it just goes to show that you can get the range from these new one bike setups it's just that the steps in between might be a little bit bigger. so you are you are it's gonna f- like someone like Vingegaard would feel those gaps presumably so if he if he's on a st- if he's doing a cl- like if it's a stage where it's lots of changes in inclination then he would probably want to be running the two by so he's got those extra steps and to keep that the ideal cadence mm-hmm. I mean, how do we think so we're 
I mean, we're obviously seeing a bit, you know, a shift in in drivetrains towards um, towards one by. We are seeing them more in road cycling in general, you know, not just in the pro peloton. But at the same time, we're also seeing kind of the early emergence of internal hubs. The classified system. That's the one, the classified system. What was that, about 13 million? I was going to say other systems are available, but... Other systems are available. They're not sponsored by the (laughs) EPC, but we want to act like them. Um, And, I mean, how do we think... I mean, do we think that actually what we're more likely to see in the years ahead is a move towards more of that kind of system where you don't actually have the front derailleur, but you still have that, the flexibility of basically being in the big ring or the small ring? It certainly has the benefits of being being more aero, and you you're keeping all that gearing out of the muck and grime and things. So it should be quite durable. And we really liked it. We gave it a nine out of ten review. Was it, Jack? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it won sort of our most innovative product of last year and stuff like that. So and it's clearly been the cycling industry does clearly like it. Wheel brands have been taking it on like nobody's business. The, like the list that, of wheel brands recently that have, that are putting classified system in their wheels is, is huge. Um, but what it's such a sizable shift for what gain, like the aero benefit is so small and does it work any better? But, but surely that. But surely the answer. That surely the answer. The the thing that it's answering is that in order to, to make it so that um, Vingegaard and the rest of us don't have to choose between one by and two by. Surely that what it's the question that it's answering is so that um, so that bike component manufacturers don't have to develop a seventeen tooth cassette um, in order to satisfy. Uh, riders who want all those little steps because the classified system can can satisfy that. I think it's going to be hard for the classified system to make it in pro cycling because mm. of wheel changes and things like that. So you'd need to have all your spare wheels with a classified system inside. I know Victor Campanarts did use it for a few of the classics and <clears> he went all out. He was using an absolutely ginormous front ring on his bike. But if you... Yeah, if you puncture that wheel, then you need to put another classified wheel on because otherwise you're stuck in that huge chain ring <laughs> with just a conventional cassette on, which, yeah, you're obviously going to struggle. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's an, it's a, I think it's a, it's, it seems that to be that we're kind of at quite a pivotal time at the moment in terms of changes to the drivetrain. You know, with all of these different things coming in, so let's say, let's what do, what do we think we're going to be looking at in five years' time? Where where are we going to be? Are we still going to be running? Is there still going to be that debate? Do we think that we're going to be running at one by? Do you do you think that we're going to be running with kind of you know a classified or classified esque system at the back? I think in five years' time we'll still be having this argument. Um, <laughs> I think that one by will be a lot more common, um, but I think that two by bikes will still exist. I think the drivetrains will be 13 speed and maybe even a nine tooth cog at the back, which will wear out horrendously quickly. Um, but so I think that one by will have gone a large way to replacing two by setups, but I think that I hope that we still have that choice. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with Jamie, and I think it, it's quite clear that it's a technology that is it is it is it inevitable? Would we say that would we go that far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then does the that mean that then that you know if if I've got a certain amount of money to spend on my new road, like I I think um you know the the other changes we've seen to the bike, you know, all the cables have disappeared now, almost da- down to like the down to like the mid range really isn't it you pick up um i know it's not cheap but you, you can pick up a bike for two and a half to three thousand pounds that um is completely cable tidy and uh hydraulic disc brakes and all the rest of it um so that that's that's going to continue to happen 
uh, and on more affordable bikes. Um, but then I think if, you know, like I said, if I've got a certain amount of money, a good amount of money to spend on my next bike, and then will we, what is that uh, the, the next change that we're going to start to see as well? That um, the, the, when, when I choose what, uh, what level spec of bike that I want, is there going to be one by bike set up, one by offered in the bike shop? Because at the moment, most of them are two by really, aren't it? Save it. Let's think about, um, you know, a specialized tarmac or a giant propeller canyon air roads uh if i look at their range on their websites now uh they're all two by but well will we start see is that what we're going to start seeing creeping in uh one by i think i think this year you might you'll see one by bikes for sale because at the moment that's that's still a thing you have to like request really to get off the peg Mm -hmm. and let's be honest most most um that's how most bikes are sold and and that's the thing, and it because because for for all people moaning about um, that bikes have gone disparate, if you want to build your own with ring brakes, still perfectly possible, and I think that that will continue for perhaps even decades, maybe um, you know before we before you're not able to build yourself a bike with uh, with rim brakes on it anymore, if that's what you want. But um, but the bulk of the market is bikes that people are buying either you know rolling out of a bike shop or buying off the peg so to speak and i think if we see one buy on that on those uh you know trickling through to that then that's that's a sign that it's changing and it's here to stay hmm. i think there's only one solution to this and later in the week i'm going to make my bike one buy and see how i get on nice yeah that's a good shout yeah i'll make a youtube video on it <laughs> Dreaming of adventures and forging a new unknown path? The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is your companion to help you see the road ahead, whether it's a steep incline, a windy descent, or simply some place new and wonderful waiting to be explored. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today, with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set us apart from other GPS options. It has free global maps with points of interest included, like cafes or campsites, so you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. Seamlessly and wirelessly import routes from Strava, Komoot, and more. You can route, reroute, or create pin-drop routing on the fly, all with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. The Karoo 2's touchscreen display is intuitive, responsive, and in full colour, so your navigation experience is more like a smartphone than a GPS device. It's even scratch-resistant with anti-glare and water droplet rejection, so you can see your data clearly, even in the most rugged conditions. So I used my Karoo 2 very recently and found that, yeah, it is very much like a smartphone rather than a GPS computer, so fewer buttons, more presses. It is considerably more intuitive than anything I have used before. So tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Karoo 2 as their trusted riding companions, including women's tour team Canyon SRAM and Team Israel Premier Tech. Hammerhead athletes keep on course and stay aware of upcoming elevation changes with their Karoo 2 devices. Right now, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code ROADCC at checkout to get yours today. That's ROADCC, all in capitals, at checkout. Last year, we subjected Liam to a load of tests to find out why he wasn't, and to the best of my knowledge, still isn't good enough to be in the Tour de France. Well, this year, we've gone one step further and booked ourselves in for a lactate testing lab session at Synergy Performance, which promises to be the gold standard in finding your strengths and weaknesses as a rider. We'll be running through how the tests work and what they can tell us, why this isn't gonna be the last time you hear lactate testing mentioned in the world of cycling, And finally, we'll be taking a look to see how my numbers compare to the elites and just how far I've got to go if I did indeed want to be beating Roglic at the Giro. So Luke, thanks for having us here at Synergy Performance. I'm a little bit apprehensive about how much the tests are going to hurt, but uh, I'm interested to see what they can tell me about my cycling performance. So today, we're going to be building a better picture of my full metabolic lactate profile. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. It sounds very interesting. But how is it going to be better than like a VO2 max test or an FTP test like we put Liam through last year? For you today, we're mm. going to be doing a full metabolic profile. So we're going to be doing 
two tests. The first test is going to be looking at your aerobic capabilities. We're going to be trying to pinpoint your thresholds, um, looking at your ability to metabolize fats, which is really important for road racing. Yeah. And we're also going to be doing a really short test, where a sprint test, where we're going to be trying to understand your ability to use carbohydrates. That one sounds all right. I don't mind it. Yeah. So um, it's a lot easier than most people think. So I'm intrigued mm -hmm. to see what you think after the test. Okay. Um, but 20 minute tests are never easy. You ride as hard as you can and you're going to be completely done at the end. Whereas this is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm interested to see what you think. So with an FTP test, I always found that when I started cycling, yes, I was probably a bit weaker, but I, I didn't know how to ride an FTP test. I didn't pace it or like, I wouldn't just want practiced on those efforts. So now I think not only am I stronger, but also I'm better at doing an FTP test. So that probably skews the results slightly. Is that the case here? Can I be better at lactate testing if I, if I did it again? So you can't really manipulate lactate data. Mm -hmm. It kind of is, you can't hide from it. So yeah. as you said, a 20 minute test, you can get better at pacing those efforts. You could take caffeine, you could pace it differently. There's lots of variables to give you that 20 minute reading. And then if you're then predicting someone's training zones based on that 20 minute effort, then yeah. you have to question how accurate is it gonna be? Um, so the idea that we're kind of understanding is how your body is responding to set exercise intensity. So as we're mm. sort of going up through the intensities and we're continuously collecting data, yeah. we're really understanding sort of how your body is responding to them. And what about for the everyday cyclist? Do you think we'll see lactate testing being useful for the everyday rider? So if you only have eight to 10 hours to train and jump off the bike, you've got to go to work the next day or a lot of people have kids they've got to look after and you can only get five hours of training down a week, then yeah. maximizing your understanding to make sure every hour on the bike counts is surely highly beneficial. So that's kind of the angle that I'm coming at it is yes, it's great for pros, but there's a lot of empty space that I'm trying to fill in the middle ground and bring this to people who just have a passion for sport. So basically, by the end of the season, I'm going to be flying. No comment. <laughs> Before we go any further, it might be useful if I know what lactate actually is. Lactate is, is a byproduct, in a way, of metabolizing carbohydrate. Yeah. So as we're building a profile of your physiology, by measuring the volume or the concentration of a certain amount of blood, we're able to see how much carbohydrates you are supposedly burning. Okay. So in order to get rid of that lactate, it's got to be transported to your slow twitch fibers from your fast twitch fibers, mm -hmm. and it's then turned back into energy. So part of the test that we're looking at today that we focus on quite specifically is your ability to clear lactate, your ability to shuttle lactate, and that's yeah. something that was never possible with any power duration te testing and we're finding that it's for road racing is probably one of the, the the main points that we want to kind of focus on post test yeah so i think it's about time we uh, got on with some testing yeah um there's two parts to it right yeah what is this first what are we going to be doing first the first part is basically a steady state ramp test yeah. um we're going to go up in four minute intervals and I'm going to be collecting lactate data at each step. And the idea of this part of the test is just to pinpoint your key thresholds, so the point at which you go from metabolizing fats to carbohydrate, yeah. and at which rate that happens. And then we'll continue going until I'm confident that we've reached your threshold mm -hmm. or your, your second fresh threshold we're looking for. And that, that second threshold is most closely linked to FTP. Once we've found that, we stop the test and we'll come back down to rest. We're not gonna be going up in set jumps. Some people may go somewhere else and they do a, like 25 watt jumps, but mm. for you as quite a competitive cyclist, if we were to go up in a 25 watt jump, we could completely miss really important markers. So 
I'm deciding how big those steps are live from the data I'm getting back. Yeah. Now you're back at baseline. This next test is a really short sprint effort. Um, and the idea is once that sprint is done, we're going to get straight off the bike and sit down in the chair. Okay. And the reason why we do that is lactate doesn't spike instantly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people kind of a misconception is they think they cross the line and there's obviously lots of like videos out there of people like claps across the line and people trying to get lactate readings. Um, lactate will take a period of time to peak and a period of time to decrease or trough. Mm -hmm. So it's that that we want to measure and understand. Um, and the data we get from that can tell us a lot about how you're metabolizing or using carbohydrates as a fuel source. Um, and then obviously how you're clearing the byproduct of using that, which is lactate from the body. Three, two, one, go. Ten. Five, four, three, two, one, stop. It feels so weird to get off the bike, like immediately after sprinting. Right, well, that's the testing done. And obviously I'm gonna be weaker than the pros across the board, but hopefully you'll be able to tell me what I can work on to get just a little bit closer to them. 100%. So start off with a strength of yours. When we're looking at sort of this graph here, we can clearly see as the intensity goes up, there is a point at which you start to accumulate lactate in the mm -hmm. blood. So from what we discussed earlier, if lactate is a byproduct of burning carbohydrates, we know that point at which you start to accumulate that. Everything below that, your body is prioritizing using fats. Now, the reason yeah. that's so important is cycling is an aerobic sport. The, the longer the event, the more demand there is to to improve your fat metabolization yeah so basically you can tell me at what wattage i can go out and ride and realistically ride all day 100 percent. so this is what zone two is if you're using strava training peaks mm -hmm. and you've inputted your ftp and it predicts that 50 to 60 percent of that is where you should do your aerobic riding then it's basically predicting that you're metabolizing fats there and you're gaining aerobic yeah. adaptations or improved improvements. Now, is what we're able to do is pinpoint the marker which that tipping point turns. Mm -hmm. So for you, this would be your endurance ride, your three, four hours that we want to keep it below the 250 watt marker. So that is yeah. a strength for you for, for someone of your the caliber that you're racing at and looking at where your FTP was to be metabolizing fats up until 250 watts is a real strength. So, so that shows you've got great foundation. Excellent. Whether that's from <laughs> your phenotypes and what you were born like, um, or whether that's just through your previous years of training, we can't really say, but we know that that's a strength of yours. Um, so the important thing is to now highlight potential area that you can improve mm -hmm. and in a race situation would be to understand your strength to utilize that to win the sprint test so highlight a potential area to focus on so mm -hmm. your vla max the basically it's your volume of lactic acid maximal so that's what it's abbreviated to but yeah. it's basically understanding how you use glycogen or how your glycolytic system is, how active it is, how it's uh, using glycogen as energy. Um, and we notice that that's quite suppressed, that's quite low. Um, not a bad thing. Um, and that backs up what we found with your fat metabolization to be so strong. So it's that tipping scale when mm -hmm. one's a massive strength of yours, it's hard to activate the, the, the other. But for you, I would say for the kind of racing you're looking to do, especially road and crit related stuff that are 
non-steady state, you may have to sprint across to a move. Yeah. It would be beneficial to activate that part of your energy system um, and potentially be a bit more active and, and have that kick at the end. Um, and the idea would be to go away and work on that. And when you retest, keep that fat metabolization the same, mm. but improve on that VLA max, improve on that ability yeah. to use glycogen. So that VLA max, how would I go about training that? Hard work. <laughs> Maximal hard efforts. A bit like what we've done on the turbo. Mm -hmm. Long rest periods between them because we want to make sure that when we're hitting those efforts that we're really fresh. We yep. now know that the point that you need to drop below to be recovering and clearing. And mm -hmm. we know based on how long it took to clear, how long the gaps we need between those eff efforts. Also look at how you feel on the bike. If you're not consuming enough carbohydrates when you're training, you're gonna be switching your fat metabolization on. And if you're doing that- I think I don't eat enough carbs on the bike. So that's probably <laughs> a reason. Um, mm -hmm. If you're under fueling, you're gonna be switching your body to be using fat. So when we're doing these really specific hard sessions, we wanna be um, making sure we're carbohydrate-fueled. Yeah. yeah. Many people may think that the minute you do the sprint, your lactate is instantly going to be at the highest it's going to be, and it's a downward spiral from there. It's that's not the case. Okay. Um, it can take three, five, seven minutes to reach a peak. Okay, so ages. Like, yeah. I was thinking it would be like heart rate where maybe a thirty-second delay or something. No. But like that long after. Yeah. Um, that's because we're isolating it. We're taking you straight off the bike. We're removing any riding. Mm. We're sitting you down in the chair. Um, the time it takes to reach your peak, where that peak is, and the time it takes to come down from that peak or the trough is, that tells us a lot about your ability to clear lactate after a hard effort. Mm -hmm. um, lactate clearance, obviously you cannot really measure this with power testing. So this is an area that we focus quite heavily on. Mm -hmm. um, it's also what the research is looking at a lot of the minute and what professional cyclists are looking at a lot of the minute. So Pogacar's coach, he's really active on social media, on podcasts, and he talks a lot about how he's been testing Pogacar every three to four weeks for years. Yeah. And he's also been testing all the other world's best. And he openly said that Pogacar's lactate clearance is the reason why he is a standout athlete, obviously, He's incredibly talented. He's <laughs> across the board. Yeah, but that was the one area that stood out from the world's best. So mm -hmm. if that's not screaming that this is something that we need to potentially understand a little bit and monitor and more importantly, track. And with my lactate clearance, obviously I'm never gonna be as good as Pagacha, but unfortunately. But how can how can I improve that metric? So again, very similar to sort of those efforts where you're going above an intensity and below. Mm -hmm. So we have lactate clearance, which is the isolated sitting down in the chair. Yeah. We also have something called lactate shuttling, which is your ability to reduce lactate whilst riding. Now, mm -hmm. they're, very, they're closely linked, but that's something that doing sort of over-under style efforts. So maybe going above your FTP for a minute and then coming back below, but not resting, like back below just mm -hmm. maybe like 10% below for four minutes or so and repeating that. And over time, your body will teach itself that, okay, I've spiked above threshold now. I don't, I can deal with that. My lactate's not going to spike now. I can do that com comfortably. And the idea by stepping above and below is that we're then going to push our thresholds up. We're going to improve our clearance ability. This delay is something that I've never considered. Like when, I'm out on a group ride with my mates and you race up a, a climb for a minute, let's say. And then, to be honest, once you've descended the other side, waited for whoever was off the bat, then you think, well, my heart rate's back to normal, my breathing's back to normal, and I'm thinking I'm ready to go again. But obviously there's a lot of lactate in my legs. Yeah. And if I want to beat them properly, then I need to wait yeah. until that's cleared. 100%, and this is why I focused aerobic riding is so important pinpointing that 
250 marker we found for you mm -hmm. and saying that everything below that is metabolizing carbs. We also found that when you've done that effort, it took maybe five, seven, 10 minutes to reach your peak. Yeah. If we know that's the case and you're on an aerobic ride and you sprint up a little hill, the next 10 minutes of your ride is basically a waste. You're yeah. not gaining the aerobic benefits of being below that 250. I'm going to tell that. <laughs> yeah. When they start sprinting on a yeah. zone two ride and they say, oh, it's only 20 seconds, so I'm going to have a go now. An analogy I tend to use is your ability to use, utilize fats, your, mm -hmm. the point at which you get your LT1. I'd almost say that that's like the size of your matchbox. Okay. Now the idea is to build a nice big matchbox. Yeah. Then your LT2, the, the metric that's closely linked to your threshold or your FTP, mm -hmm. I'd say that's the number of matches you have in your box. Yeah. And then the VLA max, your maximal glycolytic rate, your ability mm -hmm. to use glycogen is the length of those matches. So when you light it, you can go hard, you can attack across a move, you can sprint up a climb. Mm -hmm. The idea is to build them in the correct way. So build that engine, build your matchbox nice and big, fill it with matches, and then build those matches nice and long. Now, there's lots of ways you can do that, but the idea for you now that we've highlighted is we need to potentially fill that matchbox that you've got. It's nice and big. We need mm -hmm. to fill it with matches and make those matches long, <laughs> yep. and then you'll be all right. Well, I'd better go away and study my report and then maybe even start working on some of those weaknesses. I think it might be a while before you see it. There we have it, episode 54 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So it's a first. We have officially done a podcast where we were listening to a man puffing on a stationary bike. I didn't think we'd get here, but here we are. It only took 54 episodes before we had to take that plunge. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I personally found it really interesting. I think, you know, talking to the guys about one by, you know, I'll be honest, we're all tech geeks. So it, it was really lovely. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And yeah, to be honest, hearing Jamie suffer a little bit whilst doing uh, an FTP test, also pretty great. So yeah, as always, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to podcast at road.cc or you can find us on social media. Just search for Road CC. So until next time, cycle safe. Bye. <laughs>